A commitment to Americans United for Life on the part of countless Americans of all ages, backgrounds, and beliefs powers our work on behalf of the human right to life. As we stand alongside our national peers in the cause for life, we reflect on the role that any one person can play in supporting life-saving and heart-changing work through not only visionary, but also sacrificial giving. Mindful of the critical importance of responsible stewardship of every gift invested in the mission, we speak with Peter Hinman on donor relations, stewardship, and the impact of every gift. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law. I am Tom Shakley, and I'm joined today by Peter Hinman of Americans United for Life and also Noah Brandt. It's good to be here with you, gentlemen. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thanks, Tom. Peter, we're going to talk to you today about a lot of things, but first we want to talk about you, where you're from, what brought you here to Americans United for Life. Sure, ab- absolutely. Uh, well, originally from a, a small coastal town outside of uh, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, so uh, had, uh, the values of life, uh, and liberty instilled in me, uh, from, from birth. Peter, your family has a long history in Massachusetts, right? Can't you trace your lineage uh, back to the Mayflower or something like that? That's, that's right. My, uh, my ancestors, uh, came on the Mayflower in 1620. So 400 years, uh, and that's the, incredible. Yeah. The, the running joke in my family is, uh, 400 years, but, uh, in that amount of time, we moved about 15 minutes down the road from <laughs> where they landed. So, and you still, most of your family like still, uh, still lives there. Right? Yes. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, still, still in the same area, South, South of Boston, uh, on the way of Plymouth. So, so you chose exile then. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's right. I, I'm, I'm the first to, to escape, to get away. You want to go back at some point? Yeah, I would go back. Yeah. What's the difference between Massachusetts and D.C.? Well, the the city uh, culture is, is different overall, I, I would think. Um, transit systems are, are a lot different. Uh, the T, as we call it in Boston, is certainly no, no metro. Um, but Boston's cleaner. Uh, it's nicer. Uh, but you don't have the views of the, the capital and the monuments, and that's what uh, you know drives people here. It's a good point, but still a lot of history in Boston. A lot of history. There's so much to do. The Freedom Trail, the, the State House, uh, of course, uh, the Boston Harbor. Uh, everything there is is so enriched in history. So, you know, seen Plymouth that, Rock. That's why I love history. I I have seen Plymouth Rock more times than I can count. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, we're talking about the the role of visionary and sacrificial giving today, and I think these are things that you know, if you look at a place like Boston or Philadelphia or Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. You see the the symbols of these things, the symbols in our public square, whether it's a Washington Monument or the Freedom Trail or what have you. These are, are physical representations of the ideas behind America that we want to preserve for future generations. And so they're an example of that in their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes sense that you're here, Peter. Uh, you went to University of New Hampshire, right? Yes, correct. Uh, University of New Hampshire studied 
uh, political science there. Uh, I originally went there because I enjoyed their hockey team so much uh, <laughs> that that's that's half the reason. But I, I stayed all four years nonetheless uh, during some hard times for the, the hockey team. What, what's it like? I think, uh, you know, as, as somebody who enjoys following sort of the circus aspects of politics as well as the principled uh, policy type of things. I think being in New Hampshire would have been a lot of fun, right? You were there during during a presidential election, during a competitive Senate election. You probably people just, I mean, candidates are just like flocking there looking for one vote in New Hampshire is like 3% of the vote, right? So they're like any, any <laughs> voter they could get. Uh, well, it was under a million people. Uh, certainly, I, I think. Um, it's so small. Yeah. That's uh, crazy. Right. And, but a lot of territory to cover uh, between those million people. Uh, but you're right. I, I actually was there during a very unique time, 2012 and 2016 elections. So my freshman and uh, senior year and uh, two drastically different scenarios. Um, you know, 2012 was a, a lot different in, in the fact of grassroots mobility and, and things like that. Um, 2014, there was a, a Sunday election as well uh, with Scott Brown taking on Gene Shaheen. Um, and then 2016. Scott Brown, your former senator from Massachusetts. Massachusetts, <laughs> uh, yeah, followed me in New Hampshire. I helped him out in, in both states. But The real question now is, will you follow him to his current position in New Zealand? He's now ambassador to New Zealand. He is. He is. Uh, if he'd allow it, uh, <laughs> perhaps. Cinder um, Brown, if you're listening. Ambassador Brown Ambassador now? Brown. Uh, Peter, Pete Hidman could be your bag man. But 2016 was... was uh, very unique in, in the fact that you had uh, a primary going on as well. Uh, in 2012, there wasn't really a primary that, you know, Mitt Romney had in the bag and, and so did Barack Obama. You had Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. And, uh, of course, you had every conservative uh, in the, the nation coming <laughs> 17 to... 17 or something. Yeah. Yeah. Did a lot coming, of candidates come to campus or at least come to events that you were able to go to? Or eight. See? eight uh, for some reason, they all liked having uh, donuts and talking in, in uh, our uh, student hall there. So I met a lot. Uh, they picked Sunday at 5 p.m. a lot. Ray cut into football. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, they they all came. Um, it, it was great to to see uh, most of them, and um, the college Republicans were very torn. Um, you know, I was uh, with students for Rubio. Uh, you know, uh, fellow colleagues of mine with the Jeb Bush campaign. Uh, you know, uh, Carly Fiorina had had a following. John Kasich. Wow. Um, so that there were just a lot and. You know. Cinder Rubio, Miss Mrs. Fiorina, <coughs> Governor Bush, all great champions for life. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that that was that was a uh, a big big moment was was picking your your candidate and then following them through. And then when New Hampshire was over, it was it was a relief that it was on to South Carolina. But and you got to work with with one of these folks, right? I I worked with uh, the students for Rubio campaign. I was I was head of that. Uh, at the university. So we had, I would think, maybe the largest following. Uh, Marco Rubio was so appealing to, to students during his his campaign. So uh, I had a, a quite a, a job to do. And unfortunately, the New Hampshire debate was uh, not his shining moment. A uh, real turning point. That a was a real negative real turning, turning point. point for him. And uh, when Chris Christie 
kept calling him out, and uh, Rubio didn't have much of a response. So Famously, Cinder Rubio repeated the same exact phrase three times in a row. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Bad moment, yeah. yeah. So what was it like working with Senator Kelly Ayotte? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, working um, at, at the time my senior year, I was a, an RA from my building, um, you know, I was uh, working uh, a student job at school, and then I was with the Rubio campaign, and then uh, Kelly Ayotte's uh, re-election campaign. She was the, the sitting senator from New Hampshire at the time, and uh, because there was a presidential election uh, and people were door knocking, uh, we had the idea that we should start door knocking in in January and February, it was cold, and and we did that uh, to the very last days up up until the election. So it was a lot of doors doors hit. Um, you know, a, a great campaign. They knew it was going to come down to a, a certain amount of votes. Uh, she, you know, fell short by under a thousand votes. The president lost by twenty five hundred or so in New Hampshire. So we're able to to change some hearts and minds on on that front. It's razor thin, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So Peter, given your background, I'm curious what got you passionate about fighting for a culture of life and laws that reflect that? Yeah, well, I, I think it's it's so important to respect life and also give, you know, human life uh dignity and um you know, the ability to actually uh, know what it means. Uh, if I like to say if you don't have life, you don't have anything. Uh, so what, what is more important than life? Uh, and the answer simply is, is nothing. So uh, That's the foundational right, right? Without it, we don't have anything else. Yes, yeah. there, there could be nothing else if we don't have the right to, to life. Um, so it, it's just been something that has made sense to me from from the the beginning and you know growing up in massachusetts and new hampshire seeing how the other side sort of spins that narrative uh, never very uh resonated with me and, and didn't make much sense so i was i was determined to to uh find uh, an opposite opposite way to do so Peter, growing up in Massachusetts, you know, in a lot of ways, it's a progressive or liberal place, right? But sometimes life, uh, the life issue can sort of pierce through some of these boundaries. I know at least historically Mm -hmm. in Massachusetts, there's been a lot of people who've been very, you know, liberal or progressive in some ways, but also pro-life. I mean, did you encounter that at all as a young person or just in your community, your people you knew? Yeah, it's such a, you know, faith-based state, Um, unfortunately, less so. Nowadays, but, you know, growing up, um, you know, a predominantly Catholic state, uh, there was a lot of uh, back and forth with, with people and uh, what the church should be uh, doing when it came to uh, Obamacare and, and things like that. Um, and, of course, the abortion issue was, was always um, tricky for people if they should be pro-life or... or uh, or pro-choice uh, when they were running for even state office, it was it was a big question, and uh, many people went against their their faith in in that case for for votes. So unfortunate. It's a shame, you know, as we've talked about these issues on life, liberty, and law. There is that impulse to say that life shouldn't be a political issue, and you know, I think most folks would agree with that sentiment. 
that that this really is actually it's not a political issue because it's less than politics. It's it's not a political issue because it transcends politics, right? Um, but unfortunately, these issues have been made political precisely by pr- primarily the actions of the U.S. Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade and their continuing role that they're playing as this uh, National Abortion Control Board, as Clark Forsyth says here at American Center for Life. Well, and, and Tom, you bring up a great point that, you know, the Supreme Court, maybe the issue was political before them, but the most important thing they did was make it a national political issue. Like Peter is saying, you have these candidates for state office maybe hashing this out with their local churches, with their local civic organizations, with their constituents, and that's how these decisions should be made. They shouldn't be made by the National Abortion Control Board. There shouldn't be a National Abortion Control Board. Peter, we want to talk about development broadly. We've talked about the role of, of visionary giving and sacrificial giving. And so to start, you know, development is one of these words that's used. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's not necessarily an intuitive word. What does development mean? Some people use it just to mean, you know, fundraising. Um, they'll use it as a, as a synonym for fundraising. But it's really broadly development refers to the, the process of, of creating or enhancing relationships with individuals who want to support the work, uh, the mission of, of any particular group. A civic organization, um, you know, one of the, the mediating institutions in America, whether that's a, a major Washington, D.C. think tank or whether that's a, a local, um, you know, pregnancy resource clinic down the street in your hometown. Um, so development is a, is a broad concept, ultimately coming down to the human person uh, and, and how to form relationships that, that can help improve the culture of the country. Um, you are responsible for development here at Americans United for Life, uh, Peter so I'm wondering if you can kind of tell us first uh, what led you to an interest in this work broadly, and then we'll get into some of the specifics. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, development's such a, a unique field, and as you said, it's a, a lot more uh, broad than than fundraising and securing funds. Uh, it's really expanding the mission and vision for your organization, uh, past and present and going forward. Um, what got me into it was, uh, I think most, uh, you know, development officers and fundraisers would tell you uh, by accident. Uh, I yeah. don't think anyone woke up and said, I'm going to be a, a fundraiser today. Um, I got an internship uh, at a think tank here in D.C. I, I want to be a policy person, thought I was a dry-eyed, bushy-tailed uh, college student, was uh, doing pretty well in my policy courses got down to D.C. and they said, mm, you could uh, do major gifts. It's great. No idea what that is. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm coming to D.C. So, you know, luckily I did fall into to that field and it, it's something that I have enjoyed since, you know, speaking to people on why they give to your organization, what they're passionate about. And it's having something in common with someone that you would have no uh no common interest in anything else, uh, perhaps, but that that issue being, a, you know, a 20-year-old a uh, from Massachusetts at the time speaking to uh, a middle-aged or elderly man in Kansas, uh, but you're coming together on a certain issue, uh, and and you leave it at that, and, and that's what's really attracted me to, to the field. I think it brings an authenticity too, right? Because there's so much, especially in politics, as we're talking about, there's so much made about sort of, uh, you know, the average American or the things that connect Americans. And oftentimes it's let, left at sort of, the, you know, the ideas of America are what connect us, right? These abstractions. But 
when you're speaking with other folks who are supporting a common mission like mm-hmm. that of American Center for Life, you're you're recognizing, you know, okay, you're sort of encountering another person and they come to be a portrait for America in all the best senses. You understand their lives. You understand what led them maybe in a successful career or uh, what guides them day to day, depending on on how they support you and what they want to support at the organization. So I think it's a really beautiful way to encounter uh, America, actually, in a, in a very direct and humane way. Right. So walk us through what working in development at a national nonprofit like American Center for Life has been like for you over the years. Yeah, well, uh, you know, Americans United for Life is certainly different than many other organizations. Um, you have uh, a passion and a culture uh, involving one issue, really. Um, we, we do a few things here at Americans United for Life, but people are very passionate uh, about uh, the right to life and uh, the Supreme Court case of, of Roe v. Wade and uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and you see that uh, every day, and that's that's why people give. They, they know that AUL is... Uh, the only uh, stop in town to ensure that uh, those cases can be overturned. And if they are, or or to get them overturned, that we're going to have a sound legal law that will be able to overturn. And people overlook that. And our donors understand that, that we're actually the ones on on the front lines. So it's specifically unique that people have such an interest in in what you're doing on a day-to-day basis and know exactly what you're doing. Peter, in your experience, you know, why do donors choose to give to Americans United for Life and and groups like it in the Cause for Life? You know, as we reflect on this, both the visionary giving and the sacrificial giving, uh, smaller dollar giving, what leads people to do these things? Like what leads a, a visionary gift to occur? Well, simply people just believe in something uh, greater. Uh, they know that uh, it's not going to happen immediately. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but they have a vision for the future that their kids or their grandkids will live in an America where uh, you cannot receive abortion on demand uh, and against your will. So that's their vision. Um, and, and, of course, so many people give sacrificially as well, um, you know, uh, scraping out of their paychecks just to help uh to keep doors open and to keep the fight going because they also have that vision as, as well. Okay. So Peter, as we look across the landscape of major organizations in Washington, DC, what are some of the examples of the changes that have occurred as a result of donor support to major organizations? Yeah, I think you're, you're seeing it, you know, since in, in the last decade or so um, with just the the wave of political change here in in DC from what it was uh, in in 2008 uh, i think you know people are getting more issue focused uh the education issue is, is certainly uh, a divide right in the middle you have people on both sides uh of of that coming coming together whether it be charter schools or um anything else and and you have the life issue that also holds people on both sides uh, accountable and i think people are already starting to understand you don't have to have the full view of one side or the full view of the other Uh, you can really pick and choose what what makes sense to you and 
and donations actually make that happen from from a policy standpoint because it's what individuals believe in um, that are helping change hearts and minds, and and that's that's being seen all over. So as one gives to an organization, the the gift is made at whatever level, and it's there to support a mission. What role then does stewardship play in ensuring that those gifts are utilized uh, in the most effective and, and proper way? Absolutely. Uh, you really have to know what you're giving to and, and who you're giving to. And um, an organization's responsibility uh, to the individual is uh, to provide them with updates on, on what they're doing and, and what work uh, is being done with your generous funds and what can can be done better in uh, you know spending analysis and, and things like that. So um, organizations uh, have an obligation to each one of their supporters, large or small, that they're doing the right thing with their their money, and that's, for instance, promoting the policy that the the donor wants. Yeah, I think this is a good illustration, too, of the role that the different scope of organizations can play. In Washington, you know, you've got some groups that are just enormous. You look at a Center for American Progress or a group of that scale, and you think the average person making a gift, they're not going to expect a relationship. They're not going to expect a callback. They're not going to be able to expect what you just described as maybe somebody listening to them saying, you know, hey, here's a, an idea on what you might be able to do better. Here's an idea about how we might be able to achieve the America we want. Mm-hmm. But at a group like America's United for Life, our scale makes the human relationship much more possible. You know, if, if somebody calls us or somebody reaches out yeah. via email or, or chat to us, we'll respond. Real yeah. people, you know, not a not a call center somewhere, right. not a hired firm, um, but but each of us uh, responding in relation to the other person. I think that's that's a distinguishing mark uh, that sets us apart. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it's nice to have that interaction to to know that. Tom's going to be at AUL and I can call him. I can email Noah. Get a hold of, of Catherine. Our, our president has uh, often uh, her cell phone number on letters to get in touch with her or her direct email address. It's really uh, personal, which is a, a terrific touch. So what can people do if they want to help with our cause in this cause for life, Peter? The most important thing is uh, investing in us as as much as we're going to invest in you. We want to hear from you. Uh, we want to hear your thoughts. Uh, and of course, there's a variety of ways to do that, but also uh, giving what you can sacrificially, visionally uh, for America and for the future of AUL. Uh, lives are at stake here. We're, we're saving them every day, and we can only continue to do that with, with your support every day. So You've been great, and, and it would be great to keep it up. As we think about the idea of nonprofits and mediating institutions and these big kind of abstract and sometimes overly intellectual ideas about the roles that these groups can play in America, let's bring it back down to a, a more practical level. I'm curious, you know, as I'm thinking about this, what the first sort of experience of a, a healthy and positive nonprofit effort was in our own lives you know what what led us to an encounter to say oh that's what these groups do that's why these are important for this country that's why we want to be involved Noah, what about you i remember two distinct experiences from being very young uh with charitable giving and nonprofit organizations the first one is operation christmas child which uh, is a thing that usually goes through churches where you fill up shoe boxes worth of uh, christmas gifts and hygienic items and other you know, sometimes school type of things 
and you take them to, you know, you fill them up, you wrap the box, you take them to a collection point, and they're usually shipped to children who might not have any other Christmas presents for that year. So we did that for my church uh every single year when I was younger. And a lot of times my family would fill up five, 10, 15. We'd do it over months. It was a really great time. Then as a kid, I remember being five years old and being at church and seeing the big collection area and seeing, you know, a thousand wrapped shoe boxes lined up ready to be shipped off to on a plane to Africa uh, for children. You know, that might be their only, their only Christmas gift that year. So that was really impactful. And I really enjoyed that. And then a few years later, uh, when my, my mother was volunteering at a pro-life pregnancy center in St. Louis. It's still around hand-in-hand pregnancy care center. It's a great place. Uh, she started distributing these little baby bottles, these baby formula bottles that she that we would have at our house and she would also give to friends. And you would just fill it with change. You know, you just fill it with change and whenever it was completely full, you would take it there. And she ended up distributing one year about, you know, 25 of them and I'm not sure how many times they're empty, but she collected collected them from all of her friends. And in one summer, they raised $800 and change. And that's, a, that's $800 worth of diapers, $800 worth of formula, $800 in baby clothing or help for the mother. And so those are two experiences that really solidified to me the actual impact that something as easy as filling a baby bottle with change or filling a shoebox worth of Christmas presents can have on someone's life. That's beautiful. Yeah. Peter, how about you? Yeah, that that's great. No, I I think a lot of it comes uh, from the the Christmas season as well. I remember you know uh, toys to tots at at school and uh, the Marine Corps members coming to to collect those and thinking it was it was great. Uh, so that was certainly one. Um, I think the the best buddies program had a, a great impact on on me um, and just being able to to hang out with. Uh, individuals who uh, enjoy spending time with you and making a difference in, in their life um, for the short term, but also making life lifelong friends and understanding that uh, people are, are giving their time to uh, to make that happen was was the first you know uh, nonprofit uh, experience I, I had. How about you, Tom? You know, for me, it's it's similar to you guys in a few ways. Family, I think, of course, is usually the the school that that educates us in this stuff most often. And for me, I really learned that at the the feet of my grandparents, uh, particularly my grandmother. So first, to see my grandmother responding to the needs and appeals of so many across the country, you know, she would receive um, direct mail from many organizations, and she had a relationship with many charities. Uh, her mother, my great grandmother. Uh, who passed away in the 1970s, um, cared for my grandmother um, when she was little. My grandmother's father was killed. He was a Philadelphia police officer, and he was killed in the line of duty in Philadelphia when my grandmother was just two or three. Oh, my gosh. And so, you know, one of the things that that helped me understand my own life, my family, and, and the importance and role that charity plays is that interconnecting bond that both charities can play, but also a commitment to those on the part of a family can play. Mm-hmm. Because my grandmother, you know, many of the charities that she would support and that our family continues to support today in honor of her were charities that our family began a relationship with under my great-grandmother um, because of her experience in raising her daughter and dealing with, you know, bringing a family through the Great Depression and other things. Mm-hmm. So that was a powerful thing to see my grandparents continue and, and to kind of leave to us as they passed on. And then I think on a on a very practical level, sort of similar to both of you, our church uh, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, had a, a program. Today it would probably be called something different. It was called Food for the Poor. 
Um, and this was a thing that every week, um, you know, people would provide food and we would always go shopping at the mm-hmm. grocery store and buy things that we knew other people would want. So the Food for the Poor program was a big thing because just like these other campaigns, we would see in church every week a whole range of things that people would bring from all over. And you would see the, the, the scale of uh, really material aid that was provided to people who needed it and had no other way to get it. I think in that way, the, the role of sacrificial giving, but also that kind of visionary and more lifelong giving over time. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. Will Smith said, if you are not making someone else's life better, then you are wasting your time here. And I appreciate that Philadelphia connection right there, Peter. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not intentional. That's right. Philadelphia, born and raised. So Not me, Will Smith. <laughs> as we come to a close, we want to do something that we do every episode, which is our shot of gratitude. Peter, I know you are a listener of Life, Liberty, and Law, so you're familiar with the shot of gratitude. Absolutely. What is something you're grateful for? I'm I'm grateful for our our supporters for our place of of work our our uh, vision and, and mission uh, of course uh, opportunities past uh, present and in the future and a national's victory uh, bringing home a title of DC winning the World Series that's all Washington DC needed was another national title right it's very good says the bitter. Louis Cardinals <laughs> That's right. Fan. No, we don't have enough. We, there's, there's not enough, uh, you know, prestige here. Here, at the nation's capital. We need the World Series trophy. Red Sox will win next year. Don't worry. Noah, what is something you are grateful for? You know, Tom, this is like a very first world luxury, but it's something I'm legitimately grateful for. Is I've uh, a few weeks ago I started getting one of these, you know, meal delivery services. Like the they send you the raw ingredients and you cook them. And uh, this this has been a very Posh. busy couple weeks for me. It is, you know, it's good. It's been a very busy couple weeks for me, uh, finishing up, you know, uh, another degree in the evening. So I have not had a lot of time to grocery shop or cook. But these still allow me to cook food, to have it be nice and healthy, and to share a meal with my wife. And so I've been really thankful for that first world luxury. Tom, what are you grateful for? You know, we spoke with Lee Edwards recently on Life, Liberty, and Law, and he shared with us among many things. His experience uh, as, as a boy and as a young man seeing the Washington Senators play in the flesh, which I think is just awesome. I mean, this is something that's not within living memory for, for many Washingtonians, for sure. Um, and so, you know, Lee joked about, he said, you know, at his age, he's ready for a World Series victory this year. He doesn't want to wait until next year. And he got it. He got it. I love that. I love awesome. when he said, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to wait till next year. I like that. You know, he, he has he has authority to say that type of thing. And now hearing that, I take back what I said to Peter. I'm very happy the Nationals won the World Series. All right, we've come around. Good. Solidarity. Peter, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your perspective on your work and the continuing work of Americans United for Life. No, thank you. Uh, thank you uh, both for, for having me on. Um, and thank you to our, our wonderful supporters who, who make this happen. Listeners Wait. like you. If you enjoyed today's show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Pull out the app, rate the show, leave a review, and message a friend to let them know that you've discovered life, liberty, and law. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, or whatever, drop us an email at life at I'm Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.